Tuesday Night Talk is a part of Real Sound Reviews YouTube channel where I make tutorial, reviews and many incredible things to help you in sound creation. You can support by donation on patreon.com zdv and indeed subscribe to never miss a single episode. Tuesday Night Talk. Today I'm very, very glad to receive Matt Colton. Matt, hi. Hi there. Uh, so you are a mastering sound engineer since 1997. You've been collaborating with great artists like uh, Coldplay, Peter Gabriel, Affix Twin, The Bat Band, My Bloody Valentine, among many others. There are many to uh, be mentioned. Uh, you've been awarded uh, three times the uh, title of Mastering Engineer of the Year yes. uh, by the Music Producers Guild. Mm -hmm. And so my first question would be, um, what was the kind of uh, training or um, studies uh, you, you or practice you made to uh, become a sound engineer and why choosing specifically this field instead of a live sound engineer or a producer? Uh, well, it shows me, I think, is, is probably the short answer. Um, but I, I started work at the age of 19 in a radio station, and I worked there for two years. Um, and during my time at the radio station, I got more involved in the technical side of uh, um, outside broadcasts, making commercials, making trailers, um, I had a show myself and that sort of thing um, and uh, so initially we were making um, you know making shows and making trailers on you know we had an analog mixing desk we had three quarter inch tape machines um, we had uh, I don't know if you're familiar in radio stations sort of back in the day they had um, similar to eight track cartridges um, which we called carts, which had like 30 seconds or a minute's worth of, of recording time on analog tapes um, and CD players. And we'd, we'd make, um, you know, commercials or whatever, firing off, you know, there'd be a music bed on the CD player. I'd have, you know, maybe one voiceover recorded on one Revox tape machine, you know, a voiceover recorded on another one. I'd have some sound effects on the cart machines and I'd be, you know, sort of doing a mix, um, you know, from, from these different sources and recording that onto analog tape, which was our archive format back then. Um, and then after about a year of being there, uh, we got in the Sadie workstation, um, which is one of the earliest sort of uh, DAWs, um, you know, which was amazing that, uh, you know, you could obviously record um, audio into it and, and capture it digitally and then, you know, edit it. Um, I can't remember how many channels we had available to us on the workstation, probably like eight mono channels or something like that. Um, but even back then, you know, in 1996, I think this was, you know, there was some sort of rudimentary automation. So, you know, I was used to writing the faders on a desk, but now, you know, instead of you know, going for a take and, you know, if you get it wrong, then you just start again, you know, you, you obviously just automate in a workstation, which at the time was, was pretty mind blowing. Um, but through working at the, at the radio station, I met a mastering engineer 
um, a, a fantastic marching engineer called Mike Marsh, who at the time was working at a studio uh, called The Exchange in London. Um, and, uh, you know, we got to know each other and I found out a bit about what he did. Um, and so I spent a day with him in the exchange, uh, you know, watching him cut records and, and, and you know, uh, this time, you know, he was mastering, you know, as much for vinyl as he was for CD, um, you know, pre-downloads. Pre uh, like I said, this, this would have been 96. Um, and, uh, you know, it just looked like, um, it looked, you know, so much fun, um, you know, being in a studio with, you know, enormous speakers and a vinyl cutting lathe and all this like lovely analog hardware and, you know, the tunes banging out the speakers and stuff. Um, and, you know, I was a, a sort of a, a failed and frustrated musician, like most sound engineers, you know, I, I would have loved to have been a, a successful musician, but, um, you know, the, the talent wasn't there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, Mike sort of, um, you know, suggested that uh, with the kind of skill set that I had, you know, I might, you know, be good to, to try and get a role as a trainee in a, in a mastering studio. Um, and he recommended to me that I look in the back of Music Week magazine, which is like a, an industry magazine. Um, and fortunately, we got that magazine at the radio station. You know, it, it came out every week and a copy was sent to the radio station where I worked. And literally the next edition, you know, the following week, I looked in the back of it and there was an advert for a trainee to go and work in a, a mastering studio in London. Um, so, uh, you know, I got that job and, um, uh, yeah, at the age of 21, I, uh, I moved to London and started work as, uh, you know, what would now be called an intern, you know, um, at the time it was, uh, you know, called a trainee, but, uh, you know, sort of very low paid, um, entry level position, uh, in a, in a mastering studio. Um, but fortunately they just moved across to the Sadie workstation. So, although I went in as a sort of the most junior member of staff, you know, I had as much, if not more kind of knowledge of, as to how to use the, the DAW, um, as, as anyone else there. So uh, it kind of stood me in good stead, I feel like. Um, so, so that was it, you know, uh, and, you know, I mean, who knows, given the choice, um, you know, would I perhaps choose to be a mix engineer or a recording engineer? Um, you know, some days I think, you know, yeah, it, that would be fantastic. But, uh, you know, I absolutely love my job. It's, you know, it's fantastic. I've been doing it now for 26 years or whatever it is, uh, or into my 26th year. Um, you know, still learning, still developing, still finding out stuff. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a blessing. So, um, yeah, very, very lucky. So you, you mentioned that you were uh, working in a radio initially. What, what were the, the bands or the artists you were listening at the time? Well, at the time, I'd come from, you know, in my, in my sort of teenage years and, and kind of late teenage years, you know, I was very, very into the um, sort of uh, UK and American sort of alternative music. Um, so, you know, bands like The Cure, um, Mud, Honey, Nirvana were, were sort of really important to me. Faith No More, those kind of bands. Um, uh, but then um, when I was 18 and I sort of moved moved out of my parents' house and, and kind of, you know, um, moved into my own, uh, you know, sort of flat and started, li started living on my own, um, I, I kind of 
sort of got very heavy into the uh, the UK rave scene, um, you know, which was which was amazing. Um, sort of ninety three and ninety four, you know, those years um, specifically in the southwest of England, um, you know, it was just a really vibrant time for for electronic music and uh, free parties, you know, illegal parties in, you know, fields and, you know, um, we used to drive around, you know, and being part of a big convoy of like 200 cars, you know, trying to find a party on a, you know, beach in the middle of nowhere, that sort of thing. Um, so, so I kind of, uh, you know, I, was, I was sort of really bang into um, a kind of alternative guitar music, but also, uh, you know, electronic music and that kind of thing um none of which were played at the radio station the radio station was very much kind of commercial radio and sort of mm -hmm. like classic hits of the 60s 70s and 80s um so uh, you know musically uh you know what what they were doing at the radio station um you know didn't really float my boat but that being said it was an incredible place to work for two years and i, I was lucky to have a you know very supportive boss because i was a little bit of a wayward youth um and uh you know he kind of uh my boss there saw the good in me and, and sort of humored me and uh you know um accepted when i kind of slipped off the rails a couple of times uh but yeah um you know i uh you know i used to play drums um when i was a kid uh i've been playing guitar since i was 12 but you know even from the age of 16 you know i was programming stuff on um you know, on like uh, like an Amiga um, computer, you know, with the... So, uh, yeah. so it, it, it leads me to the next question that we are, um, we belong to the same generation, I think, and there was this major breakthrough, you were mentioning Amiga, this reminds me a lot of things, uh, there was this major breakthrough in 1991, which was Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, Yes. To the and uh, that was confusing for some DJ or some uh, people who made made reviews. Is it normal that things are going out of pitch like that? Very uh, and the um, one of the things about My Bloody Valentine is how they play so loud live mm. to the point for people who don't know uh, that they were um, forbidden to make lives. I think in France uh, at some point. Yeah. And the mastering of Loveless is quite low, mm. so you made a remastering, uh, and I would like to know more about this, because how do you uh, uh, consider and address a mastering that is with a sound that was so specific, I imagine uh, the challenge for you and... Um, yeah, so Loveless... Um I mean, Loveless doesn't sound like any other <laughs> recording, you know, and um, I mean, Loveless is a funny one. Yeah, I remember when it came out, um, I wasn't obsessed with it when it came out, I liked it, but it's a record that sonically you have to kind of bend to its will, if you know what I mean. Like if, if you just play Loveless to someone who's never heard it, you know, they may well say after 20 seconds, like, this doesn't sound very good. Um, if you play them the whole thing, you know, and they're, and they're open-minded and they give in to its sonic world and they move to it, you know, it's incredible. It sounds incredible, but it doesn't sound like anything else that I've ever heard. 
and I've you know through the work that I did on it um, over a period of six months or so um, you know I know that record sonically very very well um, in terms of uh, I mean it, it it just I don't think you can judge it um, in comparison to any other piece of music and that includes any other piece of my bloody Valentine music even you know so I know what you're saying it I mean it, it's actually it feels you know quite compressed and quite dense but also it's not loud um, now the job that I was brought in to do was uh, a pure analog disc cut so Kevin got in touch with me um, what he'd done uh, because Kevin sort of took over all the remastering of of the My Bloody Valentine um, sort of catalogue uh, I, I can't remember exactly when but sometime in the 2000s I think or early 2000s um, and Kevin had got a recording on half inch um, uh, of a set of uh, of masters for Loveless that he had EQ'd um, in a way that he liked and uh, he'd gone off and he'd cut this um, uh, pure analog disc cut so you know straight from the tape to the cutting lathe uh, without any kind of going back into digital um, and he he'd cut this a number of times I think I think he cut it like five or six times um, in in sort of three or four different studios uh, and never got a yeah, and got test pressings done and never never sort of got results that he was happy with and during this part of the process before he'd got to me he'd worked out that what he wanted to add to the recording on the tape was a bit of Sontech EQ but you know he had he had notes as to what he thought you know the the setting should be on the Sontech and he came to me because he knew that I had two Sontechs and he knew that I could do pure analog disc cutting um, and so we we did a number of versions of uh, Loveless um, and uh, you know we we sort of started with his notes and we, we made some adjustments to his notes based on you know what we were hearing when when we were doing it it was it was uh, myself Kevin and his engineer at the time uh, Andy um, and uh, you know but, but Kevin's very meticulous and he's very um, he's very driven and you know he knows what uh, what effect he wants the recording to have on um, on the listener you know or, or certainly on himself as a listener uh, and so we did I mean I don't know how many how many cuts of that we did we probably we probably cut maybe four or five sets of lacquers um, you know we and that's not including the, the you know the, the sets that we wasted you know where we we kind of got to the end of it because it's pure analog we were doing and we were doing things like that I remember I can't remember which song it is I think it's maybe the third third track inside I can't remember um, we had to raise the the level, the loudness level of like the last second by a dB in analog, um, you know, and there was a fade that we had to do, like a, a sort of 40, 45 second fade out, you know, that we had to do. Um, and things like that, that, you know, in a workstation, it's fine because you do it, you listen to it back, and if it's not right, then you tweak it and you listen to it back. Obviously doing a pure analog disc cut, you know, you just you're just doing it live and if you get to the end and, and Kevin felt like the fade wasn't quite smooth enough or you know we didn't quite you know maybe we boosted this one second by a, a db and a half or you know 
0.7 of a dB or you know we just slightly missed the beginning you know we were doing it all on a fade on a on a pop um, you know then we we do another take so we we kind of really went to town um, and uh, you know even just things like like lining up the tape machine you know we'd line up the tape machine sort of three or four times you know then you know have a break you know for sort of ten minutes have a cup of tea and then check the calibration again you know and each time just you know if the if the VU meter was like you know a needle's width off being bang on, he's, he's like no that's not good enough you know that that's you know we can do better, um, and so we did you know uh, the most intense kind of analog <laughs> experience I've ever had you know really really demanding sort of digital precision, but from an analog um, a pure analog system you know. Okay, that that sounds like like Kevin Shields uh, being quite demanding. Uh, okay, so yeah. quite quite an experience. Uh, you, you were mentioning that a, a specific piece of gear that he uh, came um, uh, in part to to see you because of that. Uh, could you tell us about um, some components uh, of your gear that has, are very specific? Do you have some uh, parts that were custom made for you or? Uh, so, um, so it was the the EQs that that uh, that Kevin wanted to use were the Sontec four three two parametric mastering EQs, which are you know really the, the sort of original parametric mastering EQs that uh, um, it, you know George Massenberg um, and, and Burgess uh, McNeil, I think his surname is gone out of my head. Um, you know that, that they invented before uh, Massenberg went off and and started GML. Um, and uh, you know they're they're quite rare those EQs. Um, they are uh, a little bit fragile, um, but incredible sounding. You know, um, at the time they they sounded you know they just had more depth um, and kind of more air than than anything else. Uh, in terms of of sort of kit that I have, you know I'm. I'm a big fan of, of kind of analog, uh, but also hardware in general. So I quite like digital hardware. Um, I'm not obsessed with kind of custom gear. Um, I just like things, you know, that, that are good and that are right for me. Um, so, I mean, at the minute uh, in my studio, uh, on the EQ side, I've got, um, uh, so I've got a Masalek EQ, Sontec 432. Uh, I've got two Avalons, I've got the Avalon 2077 and the Avalon 2055. Um, I've got the uh, Terry Audio CEQ and I've also got um, a Metropolis uh, John Goldstraw, who was, uh, um, I think he's the original head tech, uh, genius level tech. Um, he built uh, a set of inductor EQs um, and also a set of uh, Decca type filters um, and uh, that became the, the sort of Metropolis Mastering EQ. Uh, so I've got that. Um, and then also, okay, I quite like good digital hardware as well. Um, I, I try and stay off the screen as much as possible, um, you know, the computer screen. So I quite like, uh, and in fact, um, at Metropolis, we have the computer screens behind us. So we have the, you know, the monitors and the desk with the hardware in front and the computer screens are actually behind us. So. Um, you know, I, I, I spend as little time looking at the computer as possible. 
Um, and they also have, uh, so they have the Vice uh, Digital EQ and um, the ZSYS um, ZQ2 Digital EQ. Uh, I do also have the um, the TC M6000 with the, um, uh, you know, with the, the GML uh, Digital EQ on it as well. Um, although that doesn't get quite so much use. Um, uh, the desk itself, you know, the console, um, I've got the uh, the SPL uh, monitor console and um, uh, the SPL Hermes analog router, uh, which is you know they're really good. They, you know, I have a sort of love hate relationship with the with analog routers um, because I've always found that the gear sounds better when you just plug it point to point. I understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem with that is unless you've only got like one or two pieces of gear you know, it's difficult to really do a, a sort of meaningful AB, you know, or certainly it's difficult to be time efficient and do a meaningful AB, you know, because if you've got a whole bunch of stuff, you want to try a few different things, you've got to record it all into the workstation and then AB it there. Um, and what I like about the SPL is that it's, aside from also being the most flexible in terms of routing in that, you know, you've got eight units plugged into it. So I have seven units plus a patch bay, um, is it, uh, you know, then I have a, a sort of sidecar of, of, of gear which doesn't get quite so much use, but I might want to patch into the patch bay to, to you know, come up on the router. Um, and you can, you can have anything going, you know, in any order, any of these eight things, and you've got two parallel, um, you know, processes as well, so you can have two things running parallel. Um, so it's very, very flexible, uh, and so which makes it incredibly easy to do um, very quick ABs between you know different sort of processing chains. Uh, but also, you know, having tested it, it's actually really difficult to hear the difference between going through it and actually just patching point to point. Um, and it's certainly the most transparent um, out of any you know out of anything I've tried, and I've tried most of them. Uh, you know, so so that's um, you know that's pretty good. Uh, then on the compression side, I've got um, I've got the Maslek MLA two and MLA three. Uh, I've got the um, Elysia uh, Alpha compressor. Um, I've got uh, um, Fairchild um, six seventy. I've got the Maslek limiter as well. Um, so I think that's I think that's all the analog dynamics. Um, uh, and then a couple of other bits. Um, I've got a couple of different DSs. Got a Mazalek DSer. Got an Autophon disc cutting DSer, and I've got uh, just a, a set of Mazalek kind of filters, um, high and low pass filters. You know, so there's there's a lot of uh, different kind of options. Uh, I've got the Vice uh, Digital Dynamics as well. Um, so there's a lot of options in the desk. You know, before we get to the computer. You know, where obviously we've got. All the plugins um, and more plugins than I know what to do with. <laughs> yeah, so so there's there's a lot of options. Um, I mean, in terms of the kind of uh, the sort of bespoke stuff that we have, you know, I guess is more around the tape machines. Um, you know, Studio A80, you know, with preview for doing the piano disc cutting. Uh, we've got you know a whole bunch of different ATR 100s. Um, you know, some of which have been modified, uh, a Neumann VMS-80 cutting lathe, which is, you know, heavily modified, um, you know, so that sort of stuff, really.
One thing I, um, um, maybe that that is a um, controversial subject or maybe difficult is uh, uh, the relationship between uh, uh, sound producer and the, the stage of, of mastering. Well, you work with big productions, uh, but also, I guess, uh, smaller ones. And uh, uh, how do you uh, build um, a relationship with uh, the music producer and Uh, what are, according to you, the m most common mistakes that are goes against um, the the um, the mastering itself? Because it looks like some sound engineers want at all costs maintain a compression on the master buzz of this kind of things uh, when they uh, they could avoid and give you more room to work the the. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, my philosophy is is, is pretty much anything goes. Um, and the key is just communication. Um, but at the end of the day, I always, you know, I like it when people um, listen to my point of view on something and take it on board. Um, I don't mind if they subsequently, you know, don't agree with me. That's absolutely fine. You know, as, as long as we've had, you know, a conversation and, you know, uh, if I have a point, you know, it's it's kind of been, you know, a part of that conversation, let's say. Um, you know, I'm not the most important person in the chain. And, and to be honest, you know, my job is to sort of help someone realize their vision, you know, as opposed to me kind of, you know, stamping my authority all across it. Um, so... You know, in general, that that works fine. And, you know, whether that's, you know, I work on a lot of records that, you know, might have, you know, heavy A&R involvement, you know, a producer or more than one producer, you know, a mix engineer, you know, recording engineers, um, you know, plus the artist, you know, there might be a whole, the, the sort of creative um, team, if you like, might be quite large. And I also work on a lot of projects where it's just one person who's done absolutely everything until it gets to me um you know and every shade in between and and it's all fine i mean you know my job um a part of part of the skill that i need to have in order to be successful at my job is um is you know trying to understand you know what the creative vision is um and so you know things like you know effectively taking a brief from someone um you know and communicating with them effectively you know that's That's a huge part of, of what I do. Um, and, uh, you know, I think most of the time I'm, I'm pretty good at it. You know, not always. There are times when, you know, my communication might be lacking or, um, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, the communication doesn't flow perfectly. Um, I mean, the, I suppose probably the one thing that I think maybe doesn't get taken into consideration you know, when masters are being assessed is that, you know, there are times when as mastering engineers, we will do a certain thing in order to make the recording more compliant in terms of the delivery format that it's, it, it's going to become, you know, and by that, I mean, you know, we don't always have an entirely free creative hand, you know, sometimes we might have to do something technically in order to better serve it down the line um, and that's you know those kind of things are sometimes more difficult to communicate 
you know, when the artist or the A&R or, you know, the producer or whatever sort of says, yeah, but I just want it to sound like this. And, you know, you're sort of trying to say, I get that, but actually that's not going to work so well, you know, in the streaming world or, you know, in this particular landscape, actually, you know, your vision, it's not going to sound how you think it's going to sound. Um, you know, so those, you know, things like that can be, you know, more of a challenge, um, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, even around those kind of things, you know, uh, my view is in general, you know, if, if you're paying me, then you're going to get my opinion. And that opinion is based on doing this for 26 years and doing it a lot. Um, but if you want to ignore it, that's fine. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's, it's, it's your name on the record and, you know, maybe, maybe you will be happy, you know, anyway. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it, but it's all about communication. Um, you know, uh, and for that reason, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I've always preferred to do attended sessions or certainly, you know, if we're, if we're dealing with an album or something like that, you know, because you can just have this conversation with someone in the room and, and you can kind of address something in like five minutes, you know, and, uh, and everyone knows, you know, you're all on the same page. Everyone knows that, you know, you're all trying to achieve the same thing. Um, you know, so the past couple of years have obviously been a bit more challenging in, in that regard. And, uh, you know, it's much more difficult doing stuff kind of remotely over email. You know, you, you do a job and, you know, a week later they come back and say, oh, it feels like this, you know, what was your thought process in, you know, making this track a bit more basic? And you're thinking, mm, I'm not sure, it was a week ago, you know. <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was, I thought it would sound better. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, that's definitely been a, a, a sort of challenge of, of the more recent years. Because of COVID, you, 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 yeah, you mean? Exactly. In the, in yeah, the, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, fingers crossed, um, we're starting to come out of that now and, you know, we can return to... Um, You know, collaboration is, is what we're doing. Apparently, you would agree to say that in mastering there is uh, something sometimes un ungrateful that is uh, that you have to put things to a certain norm, uh, yep. a frame that depends yep. on how it's going to be listened to. Yes. And and I feel like some artist or doesn't want to hear about this thing that, uh, um, but precisely the. Um, streaming evolution um, uh, enabled to uh, end the loudness war for CDs, um, more or less. Yeah, you 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 seem to disagree with that. Um, I, to be honest, I'm I I've kind of got to a point where I'm I'm pretty comfortable in saying that. You know, I think now we can just make things as loud as we want to make them. Uh, and and by we I mean as loud as the client wants us to make them you know ultimately um, and you know if you want to make something super duper loud and that's you know that that's uh, you know that's still a thing you know you're going to get that kind of density um, you know that glue that degree of instruments pushing and fighting against each other you know that can be good it can be bad you know, it's very music dependent and it, it it's very much how, um, you know, if someone wants to present their music in that way, then, you know, that's fine, they can. And if, if someone wants to present it in a very different way, then they can do that. 
uh, I mean, I did a record for an artist called Katie Melua, who's, um, you know, she's a singer-songwriter, um, a wonderful singer-songwriter, incredible songs. Um, it, you know, it's sort of very beautifully recorded. She's got a fantastic voice, you know, nice or orchestration around it. And, um, you know, we were talking before I started mastering the record. Um, and, and she was sort of saying, you know, there's, there's, there's a thing that happens, you know, around about this time in the process of making records, because this was her eighth album. And she's like, you know, it's, it's when I go from liking the sound of my records to not liking the sound of my records. I'm like, okay, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, we were talking and, and, and Cameron Craig, who mixed the record, um, you know, the incredible mix engineer, he was saying, you know, it's basically, um, every time he, he'd give her listening reference copies of the mixes with digital limiting on, she just didn't like it, you know, and when he took the digital limiting off, she did like it, right? You know, um, now, so we're talking and I was, I was like, well, why don't we just make a record without any digital limiting on it then? And I was like, can we do that? Of course we can do that. You know, and so I, I sort of, I, I said to them, you know, the, the only thing is there are, there are instances or there were instances at this point in time, you know, where um, Spotify would add its own limiting and turn things up if they were too quiet. And so I said to them, you know, I don't want us to be in a position where you know, that happens. So I'm going to make this record just above that threshold in terms of the dynamics, you know. So if, when I deliver you these masters, if you say to me it's too limited, you know, at that point, my advice is going to be we don't want to make it any less than that. Um, but obviously, you know, if push came to shove, we, we would do. Um, you know, and we did, we did that entirely in analogue, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, a combination of, of the unfair child or the Mazalek limiter providing the limiting, um, you know, zero, zero digital limiting on the whole record, uh, you know, and, and, and Katie didn't have this problem of like, you know, after mastering, listening to the record and thinking, why doesn't it sound like Smokey Robinson sounded or, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, what is this, this modern thing that has to happen that makes everything suck? To, in her mind um, you know and you listen to that record on um, you know on, on Spotify or, or you know Tidal or whatever um, and it doesn't sound quieter than other records but it certainly doesn't have the same density you know it, it's definitely it's, it's more open um, you know it, someone might say it sounds weaker someone else might say you know it sounds clearer do you know what I mean? Um, from my point of view, it sounds different to, you know, most other records because it's so, so open dynamically. Um, but it's not a bad thing. And you connected the dots between the artist feeling and intentions on one side and the technique on the other, which is ultimately exactly. what is, yeah, what, what is yeah. the goal? Oh. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of great example of, of, of what mastering is and, and, you know, getting to an end point where it's successful, you know. Um, but I've also, you know, I've also made records, you know, I've made banging EDM records where you're like, 
this is the loudest thing I've ever heard. And then the client comes back and they're like, yeah, it needs to be a bit louder. And you're like, how? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing left to give, you know, so, um, but it, t it takes all sorts, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I kind of just view my role as being here to help, you know, with, um, you know, all the skills and experience that I've got and all the tools that I've got, you know, I'll, I'll do my damnedest to kind of, yeah, deliver, deliver to the brief, you know? So, uh, how do you see, uh, the evolution, um, in, in the forthcoming years about, about mastering, uh, we see this, uh, AI coming, uh, well, I don't think it um, it is challenging for you uh, according to your background and skills, but uh, for in the digital world, maybe it could become some kind of assistant or maybe as inside your everyday practice, you see uh, some other issues that will come into the next years. Um, yeah, I mean, AI... You know, I don't know if um, maybe I'm just lacking the imagination to see to see how it fits. That's you know that is a real possibility. Um, but certainly in terms of what AI has done so far, is it, it like AI is is just anti music. You know, it, it's it's like the opposite of 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 music, the opposite of creativity. You know, um, I mean, all AI can do is is aim for some kind of ultimate um, homogenization you know that that's all it can do all AI can do is, is is compare two things and make one you know more similar to you know to the other do you know what I mean if you know it can say okay this is the target this is where you're at I'll make you more like the target well you know try doing that with loveless do you know what I mean sure it, sure no it doesn't it doesn't leave space for uh, you know, I, I mean, if you say to any band, you know, or any artist, you know, anyone you know, making a record, okay, I, what I want to do is I want to strip out all the individuality. You know, we're going to iron out everything that makes this you and we're going to make it as much like everyone else as possible. No artist wants that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, uh, um, I think there are going to be two things, you know. The first is... Um, maybe the best part would be some kind of, you know, the equivalent for photos of ICC profile, like some kind of sound profile that translate to ensure that some hi-fi system or sound in for headphones or inside cars optimize what you have been doing. And there is the dark side, which is that about cooking, if we compare with cooking, you are some kind of three-star Michelin restaurant and yeah. <laughs> yeah sincerely and uh, uh, but a lot of people uh, are going to eat at McDonald's uh, yeah. this is someone French speaking <laughs> so, and it has a great success in France and uh, there is a problem an overall problem of education about what sound is in itself and now we can raise the volume uh, no, not the volume it's uh, <laughs> the, the, the level I mean uh, of quality And, uh, and this is more like some kind of moral, ethical, even political problem about education. And 
indeed there are going to be some kind of top masterclass, but I think the average sound engineers for low budget are, are challenged now by this AI logic, but this is, maybe I'm wrong, maybe. Uh... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess maybe I'm possibly shutting my eyes to it a little bit, closing my ears, maybe. Um, you know, and it, it, but it, yeah, it kind of all comes, you know, let me give you another example, like, uh, like UK Grime, you know, was, was and, and is, but you know, when it started, was a, a kind of revolution um, you know, you had a whole bunch of people making music in a way that it was the only way they could do. You know, making 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 music with their playstations. Do you know what I mean? And um, you know, doing stuff that uh, you know, sound engineers would throw up their arms in horror of like, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And then you listen to it, and it's like, holy fuck, that's amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, by doing it all wrong, you know they invented something new and, and something that was entirely their own, uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah, you know, um, it's like, you know, we don't have to kind of strive for, uh, you know, sort of perfection all the time or, you know, perfection can mean so many different things. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, you know, AI, yeah, it kind of, it kind of, you know, and you see it being applied in like, you know, people making records with AI, do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, I fed in, you know, a bunch of different notes and then AI wrote the melody. Well, I mean, is that good? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's good or not. You know, I kind of think, well, what's the point at that point? Do you know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's, it's probably a, a short term view uh, to make benefits, but kill the musical yeah. process in the in the end so let's yeah. go back to uh to quality precisely you you are one of the rare um, mastering sound engineer to make this half speed vinyl uh mm. so uh uh i it changes the, the quality and i suppose you adapt the, the process before in terms of eq because maybe the the overtones of uh, these are my preconception. I don't know uh, how you 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 proceed, and uh, I would like really to know more about uh, what what it brings to uh, to sound quality. Yeah, uh, I mean, half speed is a funny one um, because I would say, you know, more often than not, it's not better. Um, more often than not, it's just different. But there are times when it is better, um, and. So what, you know, what we did and, and what we've done um, and a number of other people in London have done is, you know, we have the modification within the uh, lathe circuitry itself. So the, um, you know, you adapt the RIAA curve within the lathe. Um, and in terms of the kind of program material that you present to it, uh, you know, I would say, you know, Haspid gives you a different result in the low end. Um, and also, you know, one of the conditions that will cause the lathe um, circuit breaker to trip is, uh, you know, information around about the DC point. And obviously, if you're pitching everything down by an octave, which you are to cut half speed, um, you know, the bottom end has stepped down by an octave. So, you know, you might have to be sort of aware of that um, and sort of... Uh, 
pre de emphasize the, the sort of lowest um, band of subs, if you like. Uh, you get different results in the low mids. Um, so sometimes I will kind of trim out a bit of low mid um, with a bit of EQ, uh, you know, when I'm cutting half speed. Um, that's always a bit of a, you know, I, I sometimes you sort of think, well, you know, maybe that richness in the low mids is, that's the point of the half speed. And other times you sort of think, well, maybe it's just a bit less musical now, you know. Um, I guess the the top end of half speed is where things may be a bit more challenging because you can't do any real time high frequency control, which, you know, when you're cutting vinyl normally, um, you'll normally be doing some sort of the equivalent of DSing, you know, whether it's the acceleration limiter um, on the on the lathe itself, which is, you know, dynamically yeah, sort of smoothing off the top end, you know, or whether you're using a DS or a combination of things. Um, or some dynamic EQ in the top end or something like that. Uh, now, none of that works in real time when you're cutting half speed because you're not cutting in real time, you're cutting in you know, half half speed. Um, uh, which means none of the time constants work, so you can't do any kind of real time high frequency control. So you sort of have to uh, you know, do something and kind of bake it into the, the master recording in some way. Um, you know whether you're doing it in a plug-in or whether you're you know going through analog and capturing something and then you do the half-speed cut and then you play it back and then you have to assess you know are there any points of sibilance you know where I'm now getting playback distortion or have I actually taken off too much HF you know and now um, it's a little bit too safe you know uh, so you know half-speed um, is, is, is sort of more challenging in that way it's certainly it's you know more time consuming and you have to you can't rely on the kind of the sort of normal techniques for cutting cutting vinyl um, it does present things um, in general I would say better in the stereo field so um, you've certainly I, I think that you get the feeling of, of a sort of better wider yet more stable kind of stereo um, and dynamically as well, um, you know, it seems to kind of, you end up with a more dynamic sounding recording. You know, so things like kick drums just have this massive, you know, kind of attack and, um, you know, and that obviously presents challenges on, on sort of vinyl playback as well, you know. Um, and I've, I've got one at the minute actually where, you know, um, a side of, on a, on a half speed LP that I cut, um, you know, it's a little bit edgy towards the um, the inner diameter of the disc, and it, you know, it's substantially louder than I would have been able to cut it normally, um, and probably a bit too loud on this occasion, to be honest. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll redo it and, and just turn it down a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, so it, it's definitely it's a different thing. Um, now there are times when it doesn't suit the material and usually uh you know i think you know kind of vocal material and sibilant vocal material you know that that can be much more challenging i mean strangely enough you know um i've done a lot for, for peter gabriel um you know i cut most of the catalog at half speed now uh and certainly some of the earlier recordings you know the vocals were quite sibilant um 
you know, sort of processing the vocals through Dolby and Coda and that sort of thing to get this kind of slightly, um, slightly strange top end to the vocal, you know, um, which is great and sounds amazing, but you know, there's more of a challenge, um, a half speed. And in fact, on a lot of the Peter Gabriel things, you know, because we, we had sort of unlimited time and unlimited budget within, within reason, um, you know, I DS'd most of those recordings manually, you know, so using a, um, you know, like a, a sort of spectral, like an isotope uh, sort of spectral cleaner and just zooming in on each S or T or oh, F or, or whatever and, and literally just reducing the intensity of, of each um, sibilant uh, sound, basically, you know, um, across 10 or so albums, you know, and it would take, I mean, it, it would probably take... I don't know, uh, sort of two days to do an album that way of, of just, you know, this sort of manual DSing process. Um, you know, it's quite, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's quite challenging. Um, but the net result is that, you know, you get a much better half speed cut out of it. So, um, yeah, so so half speed, uh, it's, it's one of the things, I mean, I, I love all the different varieties of vinyl cutting, you know, I, a kind of it's one of the great things about cutting vinyl discs is that you know you can do it as obviously normal cuts but you know you can do interesting things with lock grooves and with half speed and with you know just doing pure analog recordings you know i mean cutting direct from a tape with no digital stage in between sounds different to cutting from digital you know it it, it does you know it, it presents the transients in a different way um and you get a different result you know uh, so you know, there's all sorts of fun things that you can do with vinyl. You've been doing um, complete uh, analog and cutting via the tape for Sun O. I, I, yes. Yes. There is a yeah. massive sound on this record. Yeah. Very yeah. Very yeah. Right. It goes, yeah. But fits very well the style of music we are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with with Sun, um, you know, the challenge with them is, you know, they're one of the loudest live bands going. You know. Um, and to try and capture that feeling in the mastering is, you know, it's difficult whether you're doing, you know, whether it's the digital or the vinyl, um, but they're, they're, you know, they're big, uh, sort of gearheads, you know, they're, they're into the, the gear side of things, the technology side of things, but not like necessarily the latest technology, you know? So when, when I first started working with them, um, I'd been working with Stephen O'Malley on, on a, a number of different projects you know side projects of his and he brought me in for um uh, to remaster uh white one and white two you know which are sort of early seminal um sun recordings and um i mean the interesting thing about white one is it's the first track's got a julian cope uh sort of vocal on it you know it's more of a you know julian cope talking it's more of a, a kind of poem than than singing uh but it's it, it's recorded with distortion, you know, um, but not like a distortion effect. Just I think it was just too loud into the mic, or the mic was too loud into the preamp, or whatever. Um, and it had some distortion on it. And I managed to kind of uh, again using a spectral cleaner, you know, go in and, and take out all the distortion, or you know, ninety nine percent of the distortion. So when we when the remaster came out, this was the first time that actually you know you can hear how it should have been and uh, you know um 
they were pleased with that you know they, they wanted me to do that um but we did white one and white two i, I think i just cut them did i cut them normally no, no maybe i did them half speed uh you know i'd been talking to Stephen about half speed because you do get this sort of extra weight in the low mids um and probably a bit of extra weight in the base as well, you know, sort of linearity through the bottom end. Yeah, there is already a lot of low mids with <laughs> <very music. laughs> all low mids. It's like, you know, we, as, uh, sort of saying to him, you know, we really should try this half speed. I mean, you know, um, I'm not trying to like ratchet up the bill, but, you know, it's really good at, at kind of capturing this, like making things a bit more epic. Um, and, and of course, with Sun, records it, there's not really anything well, there's very little going on in that kind of you know there's not a lot of 12k i don't really need to worry in the same way with it like you do with cutting something's half speed so anyway so we, we did a whole bunch of half speed stuff for them that they were really really pleased with and then when it came to life metal um you know they recorded the record with uh, steve albini um and obviously he you know he loves tape so they tracked it all to tape um and originally they i think they were like, you know, we've got sort of digital transfers of the tape, you know, for you to master from. And I was like, no, nah, that's not that's not what we do. You know, if, if it exists on tape, I mean, yes, I'll take the digital transfers, but, you know, let's let me work from tape as well. And then I can see, you know, which which is better um, because it's usually me working direct from the tape. Uh, and. So anyway, so we, you know, we were mastering and we, you know, we got some great sounds for the digital and, and got this intense thing. But, you know, when, um, when we were in the session and Greg and Stephen were both in the room with me, um, you know, I was sort of saying like, we've got, you know, because the original plan was we were going to cut the lacquer's half speed for life metal. But I was like, look, we've got these tapes, you know, we've got these incredible like half inch tapes that just sound amazing. Like, do you want to like, should we maybe think about doing a pure analog cut? And they were like, oh, you know, we really like the half speed. You know, it's uh, our records have never sounded so good as, as your half speed ones. So I was like, well, why don't we, you know, listen, you guys go away for, you know, a couple of hours or half a day. Um, I'm going to cut like an acetate. Or I'm going to cut two acetates. You know, one, I'm going to cut side A at half speed. I'm going to do the best I can do. It's going to be the best half speed job I can do. I'm going to cut side A on another acetate, pure analog from the tape machine. And I'm going to do the best I can do on that. And then you come back, have a listen. And, you know, it doesn't matter. You, we pick the one that we think sounds best. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me. Um, we, as long as we make the right, you know, pick the best sounding one. So that's what we did. And, and they came back and, you know, the, the pure analog cut just had this like immediacy, this, this sort of life to it. Um, you know, it probably didn't have maybe the this, this sort of weight in the same way, but it just had this kind of presence and this sort of, you know, it, it sounded like, and they were like, that's what it sounded like in the room when we were making the record, you know, with Albini. It's like, this is, this, this feels like we're in that room. So it's like, well, that's, that's the one. So we did life metal and pyroclasts, um, as, uh, as, as pure analog cuts, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, but, but they're, they're, you know, they're great. They're always up for, like, you know, doing something kind of cool and kind of interesting. Um, Last um, question, uh, which I call the magic question, is uh, how far as you can remember, uh, what is your earliest memories, recollection in your childhood connected to music or sound? 
Oh, wow. Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I remember, I, I very rarely tell anyone this actually, so uh, now I'm just going to put it on the internet. Um, when I was, uh, when I was about, it would have been about eight, um, and I was moving schools, it was my last year at, at, at this particular school before going to another school, um, and uh, I don't know if, if that caused some kind of like emotional awakening in me. Um, I know that certainly I was kind of, I, I was sort of growing up, I did a, a sort of stage of like mentally growing up at this point. I remember um, around about the same time, it was the first time uh, that I sort of um, stood up to bullying uh, and in fact was the last time that I was ever bullied, uh, But and, and, which is all an aside. Um, but the school um, put on a performance of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat which I, I wasn't in, um, you know, my, my parents didn't, um, it, you know, they hadn't kind of encouraged any sort of musicality in me at that point. Um, that came a bit later. Uh, but I just became obsessed with the music to Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat to the point where my mum had to go into the school and ask the teacher if, like, she could get a copy of the music on cassette so I could play it at home. Uh, and, yeah, for some reason, I mean... Uh, I don't know why that you know that's kind of I guess the first time like music kind of sort of uh, twigged an emotion in me. Do you know what I mean? And it's like I you know I didn't I didn't fully understand it. Um, and it, it, my my love affair with that record didn't last very long. But uh, that was probably the, the kind of very first time that I can remember, you know, really understanding that music um, it's you you're trying to elicit an emotional response from the listener. You know that's that's what musicians are trying to do. You know, and and when it connects with you, you know that's when you fall in love with it. Um, and not every music connects with every person. But, you know, but that's part of the wonder of it all. But you you didn't surrender on the fact that you wanted this tape. No, I, I had to have this tape. You know, I had to have this tape. My you know, my mum was good enough to you know not shut me down and to. Yeah, after me, like, you know, sort of just badgering her, like, <laughs> you know, I need this music. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful story, really beautiful yeah. story. Matt, uh, really, thank you very much. We could listen, to, I suppose I could listen to you and the audience, I think, will, for hours with all this uh, specific story. And it's great to see uh, how enthusiastic and passionate you are about uh, your job. Um, So everyone, thank you for watching. Uh, smash the like button. Uh, consider subscribing if you didn't already. This is the only way to help the growth of this channel. Share on social network and I will see you there very soon.